Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Dana Weiss from Penchop talking about bladder extrophy and epispadias. So it's 12 o'clock, and so I'll, I'll get started. Just um, as an introduction, my name is Dana Weiss. I'm um, a pediatric urologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Um, part of the reason I'm doing this, as soon as I trained at UCSF for my residency, and as soon as I heard that UCSF was putting these uh, lectures together, I said, how could I not do one? Um, so that's partly why I'm here. Um, my clinical practice uh, focuses on bladder extrophy uh, and extrophy epispadias complex as well as neurogenic bladder, um, as well as other reconstruction. Um, so today um, I was going to talk to you all about extrophy um, and the extrophy epispadias complex. Um, we're going to be uh, ending by noon, and if at the end I rush to cut things off, I apologize. I'll have my email address at the end also, so that um, please. Uh, you know, email me um, with any questions that come up later on if you think of them. Otherwise, please do um, write in some questions in the Q&A board. Um, I'll try to keep an eye on them and try to answer them as we go along. Um, and whatever I don't get to, um, then I can send back responses because they'll keep track of everything that's in the Q&A board. Um, so we'll get started. Forgot this doesn't click. Um, I have no disclosures. So extrophy uh, and extrophy epispadias complex is a spectrum of disease. It um, ranges from the most mild, which is, this is not even the most mild of the mild form of epispadias, and a male and a female, to classic bladder extrophy, which is the primary focus of this talk, which is the bladder is externalized and there's epispadias, um, both in a male and a female. And then to cloacal extrophy, which is the most severe spectrum um, where the, the hindgut is, is actually extruded. There can be an emphalocele, quite a large emphalocele at times. There's two bladder halves and, and, and a susceptible small bowel, and we'll get into those a little bit more, but you can just see this uh, spectrum of disease here. It's a rare uh, complex, fortunately, because it is, does um, have such a significant effect on um, anatomy and function. Cloacal extrophy occurs in about one in 400,000. Um, epispadias and complete male epispadias occurs reported around, around 1 in 120,000. Female epispadias is also almost as rare as colloquial extrophy at 1 in 400,000. Classic extrophy is the most common, and in these numbers it looks like it's very common in 1 in 30 to 50,000. It is more common in males than in females, um, and it makes up about 70% of the entire extrophy epispadias complex that we see. So we're going to start going through sort of some of the features that you see in bladder extrophy um, and then in epispadias and cloacal extrophy because I think one of the most important things especially for residents is just figuring out the anatomy and sometimes the anatomy can be um, you know some of it is very clear and some of it can be a little bit more uh, unclear as far as what you're seeing so this is just the spectrum of types of um, extrophy that you can see the basic things are you have your extrophic bladder plate. So that's the posterior bladder wall that's uh, in there. There's no anterior abdominal wall, so that's the posterior bladder wall that's sort of pushed out. You still have your ureters coming into the bladder just uh, in the trigone. Your ureteral orifices are here and here. Um, the ureters do in, implant into the bladder in a very perpendicular way, so most of the patients will have 
reflux later on once the bladder is closed um, because they don't have such a nice intramural tunnel. Um, there's an extrophic or sort of epispadiac urethral plate, um, and you can see here the vera montanum, so all the same anatomy and the epispadiac plate. The corpora are, while normal and the glands is, is here and here, they do tend to be shorter and wider than normal. Um, there is an anteriorly displaced anus in almost all children with uh, extrophy. There's a loci umbilical cord, um, umbilical cord insertion, so that once the, oops, um, Back. Once the umbilical stalk falls off, then these children are left without any visible um, umbilicus. And so that's one of the things that we try to create for them. So as I mentioned, the corpora are um, shorter and wider uh, than normal. Part of that is due to the broadened uh, pubic diastasis so that the pubic bones, rather than being uh, right up and in, in almost uh, in opposition, are spread usually around three to four centimeters in classic extrophy. That, of course, by, by spreading them apart, shortens what you see of the penis, but that's not the only part. It's that the actual corporal length is, um, is smaller than, um, uh, than in normal controls. So in a girl, you have the same general uh, features. You have the extrophic bladder plate. Um, you have an open urethral plate. It's just a little harder to see in a female because it's a shorter urethral plate. You have the same pubic diastasis, losa umbilicus. You also have a bifid clitoris and clitoral bodies. You can see them here and here. Bifid, the labia minora are where they should be, but they usually are shorter and have to be elongated. Um, and they're shorter and obviously much wider apart. The um, vagina is usually um, anteriorly displaced, so part of in the riparian end up bringing it posteriorly, but in and of itself, it's usually patent. There's some reports that it can be shorter and wider than a normal, uh, normal control uh, vaginas. And um, the uh, cervix, if you scope uh, the vagina in, in girls with extrophy, is more anterior um, than uh, in normal. So one of the features that all of this spectrum has is pubic diastasis. Um, and the sort of unique features that have been described are this, the posterior um, pelvis external rotation. It's measured to be around, on average, 12 degrees. We've looked at a lot of um, different uh, CT scans of some of our, our kids, and it, 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 there's a wide variety of ranges of external rotation. There's the anterior pelvis is also rotated um, externally, about 18 degrees. And the pubic bone itself is about 30% shorter than normal. So all of this makes for that widened um, pubic, uh, widened sort of flattened uh, pelvis that goes along with extrophy. Here you can see one of uh, a um, CT scans, 3D reconstruction of CT scans of, of the di uh, pubic symphysis and, and the pubis in a, a normal control with a very minimal diastasis here and then an extrophy, so widened um, pubic diastasis, and you can see the iliac wings be um, wider out, and there's a wide gap here. And that gap has to be bridged when you're closing the extrophy. So the other part of the anatomy that is uh, abnormal is that the pelvic musculature, the bulk of it is posterior to, rectum, to the rectum, and we, <coughs> excuse me, only 30% more anterior. Um, the levator ani, uh, 
usually you know help with some of the support and that could be one of the reasons why um uh, uterine prolapse is more common in females and and there can be challenges with continence because you don't have the uh, normal pelvic floor musculature in the correct location to provide for that pelvic support excuse me um, also as in all things there can be variants of extrophy uh, skin covered variants are some of the most common um, these can be treated the same as in uh, regular extrophy uh, often or the diagnosis can be delayed because at birth you know things might not look perfect but they're not quite sure what it is and then some of them even if there is uh, oh, if there's a bladder a covered bladder uh, or even extrophic bladder sometimes the actually urethral sphincter complex is more normal and so they can have an uh, improved chance of continence. You can also have duplicated bladders. We've seen a couple of these in a couple of our centers recently. Um, you can, in this boy, for example, there's a normal functioning bladder on the inside that you can see on ultrasound. Uh, he does have pubic diastasis. He has a very low set umbilicus that looked like mucosal and mucosal bladder plate and epispadiac urethra. But then as you're examining him, he peed straight from a meatal location or a distal glandular meatus um, on his um, on his <laughs> on his venus and had a long sustained straight stream so clearly that bladder that you can see on the ultrasound is a very normal functioning bladder and he was dry for we had to wait for 45 minutes for him to do it again so this child has a sort of an extra duplicated anterior bladder um, and sort of appearance of an epispadiac urethra and with the open glandular cleft but a normal system um, on, uh, inside. So, so that was bladder atrophy and sort of a, a general concept of the appearances in the anatomy. Epispadius itself can come in uh, also a wide spectrum from uh, distal glandular epispadius and many of these in, in looking back at our, our old history and, and some early reports can be even um, also delay, delayed diagnosis and confused for concealed penis. And many children uh, have been booked, you know, they're seen, they're evaluated, they're booked for concealed penis repair and circumcision. You go and take down the, um, the foreskin and you see an epispadiac meatus uh, to different degrees. Now, uh, one of the um, important things about epispadius is that in and of itself, it's a spectrum of uh, of a defect and that spectrum can range in the most distal ones to ha of having a pretty normal bladder neck and sphincter to a complete epispadius which is basically like an extrophy and that the bladder neck is completely incompetent there's no sphincteric um, uh, function and those kids are completely incontinent um, so the the treatment of one or the other uh, has to also sort of a be aware of that spectrum and correspond to the spectrum. So if you have a distal epispadius, you could say, I'm just gonna do a isolated epispadius repair. Um, if you have a mid shaft, it's really uh, very important to evaluate the, um, the bladder neck beforehand with a VCUG, sometimes a VCUG with a suprapubic tube. Cystoscopy to see what the bladder neck looks like to see if it co-apps and it's gonna provide some continence. Also just examining the baby uh, and looking for dry intervals. Um, uh, for the parents versus a, a complete epispadius where some people have just closed it with an epispadius and come uh, as an epispadius repair and come back. 
Otherwise, you could repair it with a, like an extra fee and do everything at once, which we'll get into more later on. Epispadius in a female has a very you know different appearance. These often also can be have a wide uh, delay in diagnosis. Sometimes it's if, if it's very apparent like this one, people are going to see that. But some kids will just present with incontinence, and then if you look very carefully, you'll see the the widened um, uh, you know bifid clitoris um, and and shortened urethra. Um, and in this girl, she was completely incontinent. Um, was an older girl already, almost four years old. And you can see here is the urethral plate. And basically, if you look hard enough, you can see right into the bladder here. Um, so complete female epispadius is also very, very rare, as we mentioned earlier. Um, often will present with incontinence. I mentioned in boys and girls uh, will have reflux once the bladder is closed, because a little because of the um, not uh, imperfect uh, inter intramural tunnel um, of the ureters. Um, the goal, these children can be closed a little bit later in life, um, just like in male epispadius, usually around six to 10, six to 12 months of age. Um, and you can form a longer urethra and repair the external genitalia. Often we'll also do a bladder neck reconstruction at the same time, uh, a bladder neck tapering, which I'll get into later on. And long-term uh, outcomes of continence fertility are actually quite good in female epispadius because you can reconstruct things. And then the far end of the spectrum is uh, choagulectropy. As I mentioned earlier, you can have a large emphalocele. You have the two isolated um, bladder halves, a prolapsed terminal ileum, uh, which is intussusceptible in and itself, and the hindgut under here. Um, you also will have two hemiglands, um, and there's the foreskin and hemiglands, and two descended testes. Um, yeah, similar to, uh, to classic extra males are more common than females. Um, there's a large uh, rate, of, high rate of uh, spontaneous abortion. That's partly what makes this such a rare disease. Um, although there are numbers, numbers are uh, decreasing also due to prenatal diagnosis because some might um, uh, be terminated early due to the multiple defects. Um, OEIS syndrome is sort of the other name for cholecholectrophy, and that includes the emphalocele, bladder extrophy, intestinal abnormalities, as you can see, and spinal abnormalities. 80-90% of kids will have some sort of um, lumbosacral dystrophism uh, in addition to the bladder defect. And here's just another example of a cholecholectrophy with small emphalocele, two bladder halves, sort of a more uh, uh, characterized in um, drawing of the same anatomy. So I'm just going to pause right here for a second um, if see if anyone has any questions. That's sort of an overview of the anatomy and, um, uh, and appearances uh, before we get into sort of the uh, more details of the care. Okay, so hold on. So postnatally, once a baby is born, um, you know, I, I removed some slides um, about prenatal evaluation, but there, the prenatal diagnosis of, of bladder extrophy um, has varied rates uh, in lit literature. Many times the, re the reports there are uh, about it come from fetal diagnosis journals, and so of course they're being reported, but there's a large number that are not uh, diagnosed prenatally, um, and that's partly because the main key of diagnosis is not seeing the normal bladder. And I always have said, and I've talked to uh, 
some uh, MFMs and radiologists about this is that it's much harder to see something that's not there than something that's there and abnormal. And so while in retrospect you could say, oh yeah, we never saw the bladder cycling, it's really, really hard to see that when that's the only abnormality that uh, would have been detected. But anyways, as far as once a baby is born, um, the main things initially are just, um, you know, normal routine care of the newborn uh, resuscitation uh, and getting them stabilized. Once they're stabilized, uh, many um, babies are either born in a NICU uh, or will be transferred to the NICU for initial evaluation, even though generally they're quite healthy with classic bladder extrophy. Um, cloacal extrophy is a different story. Um, though the tenets of uh, the initial evaluation are to get baseline labs, it's, uh, their renal function should be normal at baseline, and, um, and if we do everything the way we should be doing, it should stay normal throughout the lifetime. That's one of our goals, but it is usually normal uh, initially. Physical exam is important. You look at the bladder, you look at the size, you look at the polyps, you see if it's depressible or not. Um, and um, you get a renal ultrasound, um, and the renal ultrasound is looking for the kidneys, looking for the loca location, if there's any dilation, there can be hydro in some, in some kids if there's any ectopia. And you look at an x-ray of the pelvis just to see the degree of the pubic diastasis. I'm going to just pause here, just one second. I just see a question come up saying to show the hindgut exit in the cloacal extrophy. Two areas. One, this is the part of the hindgut uh, in this picture that's coming out. And this all will be separated from the, the um, intussusceptible small bowel and be turned inside out and tubularized to make your colostomy. And in this one, this part is the hindgut. Um, and this is the intussusceptible small bowel. Um, they're very close, uh, uh, in close apposition, and it's really the hindgut that's almost like a flat plate at the perineum. Uh, so hopefully you're able to, to see those. Um, so, so the, um, let me see, uh, once, you know, you, you've done all this evaluation, most of these kids uh, now, you know, the two ways of dealing with it, we'll all get into uh, in a second as far as early versus delayed closure. But the main thing is keeping the bladder plate safe. Now we do that. Um, there's multiple different ways to cover it. The simplest is saran wrap or uh, press and seal, which is like a slightly firmer saran wrap. Um, you can do uh, something like a kerosene gel, which is a hydrophilic gel to keep it moist. You can also just do saline bullets, you know, saline. Um, and then cover it with a, a with a saran wrap or press and seal. There are sort of fancier, um, sort of thick gel-like uh, materials that are hydrophilic to keep the, the bladder plate covered. We sometimes will use those in the hospital, but when the families go home, we just have them covered with saran wrap or press and seal. Um, the main thing is avoiding the diaper because the diaper pushing on the uh, uh, the bladder plate can cause irritation and, and more and more irritation can potentially cause more polyps or more friable polyps or cause the polyps that are already there to grow. That's also another area of sort of discrepancy and, and belief of whether more form or they just get bigger. Um, the other thing you can do uh, is uh, just cut the umbilical cord short so that it doesn't rub on anything. So as far as the closure, Historically, um, you know, in, in the not so distant past, closure was done within the first 24 to 72 hours of life. Um, it was felt that the most important thing was to get the bladder inside um, and to keep it safe from any further irritation. 
and then later on come back and do everything else. Um, even in the complete repair, again, which we'll talk about soon, um, it was often um, performed within the first 24 to 72 hours. Now, uh, at least in our practice um, and many practices across the country we do, and, and even around the world, we delay closure for two to three months. Um, it's been studied and shown that there's really no downside. Um, one argument is that oste you need osteotomies if you delay the closure. However, osteotomies are ideal even when you don't delay the closure in 24 to 48 hours or 72 hours. And so um, if you're going to do them regardless, then it doesn't, uh, there's no downside to delaying until two to three months. A two to three month old baby is much more stable and robust than a two to three day old baby. So it's a very, it's a long um, surgery, a long uh, um, or, or duration and post-op recovery. And so if you can have the uh, baby a little stronger at the time, I think it's beneficial. It allows parents to bond with the baby for two to three months before undergoing a major closure. And so having that time and early on learning, getting breastfed, feeding figured out and making sure the baby is growing um, and is, an, uh, is doing well, I think is important. And allows a, a time to coordinate uh, your own team and any visiting teams if needed. One of the, um, if you, you know, just in the past, and we were even talking about this today, that extravies used to be done as an emergency even late at night. You know, fire up the OR and, and get started on a six to eight, 10 hour, hour operation. Whereas if you plan to delay it, once you know the baby's gonna be born um, or has been born, you can gather your, your standard team. You have your urology team. Um, many centers are working with, with two attendings now. Uh, you can have your, your anesthesiologist who's very used to these kids, has done many of them, knows the sort of the nuances of them, the orthopedic surgeon who knows the osteotomy, so it's not whoever's on call. If they haven't done an osteotomy in 12 years, um, you know, it's a little harder than if it's the person who does them every single time with you. Um, you can get the NICU ready for them. Sort of there's a lot of coordination that can go on if you uh, set it up in a delayed fashion. As far as the objectives of the surgery, in the short term, the objectives are primary to close the bladder um, and then ultimately close the urethra and close the abdominal wall. In, again, in the short term, you want to reconstruct the genitalia and create a new umbilicus for them, so an umbilicoplasty. Um, in the long term, the goals are continence or dryness. And I go back and forth, uh, you know, when I say continence, I usually mean continence with volitional voiding for urethra, whereas dryness uh, is dry, being dry, um, but usually with cathing. Um, we want preservation of the upper tracts. As I mentioned, most kids are born with uh, a normal, uh, normal kidneys and normal upper tracts, and we want to make sure that stays that way. And we know that um, in the long term, if we're not careful with the bladder outlet, that that can change and ideally preserve as much sexual function as, as possible, and, and these kids should be able to have pretty normal sexual function. Um, one of, the, uh, one of the, the challenging things is there's not just one way to solve a problem, and there's been an evolution of surgical management over time, and usually when there are multiple ways that people address the same problem, there's no one maybe right answer, even though some may believe, even I'll say I believe that this is the right answer. You know, I think that when, unless there's one specific way that works 100% of the time, then we're still working on finding, um, finding that right, the right answer. 
um, a little bit of the history in addition just to um, early closure. Uh, historically, uh, kids with extra food were just diverted. Um, this bladder is, is not going to do anything. Uh, divert them uh, uh, into the colon potentially. Um, there was a, a stage in the in the 60s that people were doing a one-stage closure. Um, John Latimer at Columbia would do a one-stage closure, but his uh, the um, uh, children were sort of plagued with poor continence and renal damage because in the one-stage closure, that was before the time of clean intermittent catheterization. If there was any element of retention, they were in big trouble and led to renal damage, and the bladder would just decompensate over time and uh, increase incontinence. Then there was a staged approach that started, and the goal um, Bob Jefferson at uh, in Toronto and Hopkins uh, worked on first to saying, hey, let's get the bladder closed, then we can come back and do bladder and construction and epispadius repair. Um, in the staged approach, uh, osteotomy was incorporated into all closures, and they found improved um, uh, renal preservation and improved continence over time. So now, uh, most of the things you'll hear um, about the different ways to, to fix bladder extrophy or fix or close bladder extrophy are between a, the modern staged repair of extrophy and the complete primary repair of extrophy. I go through the, a little bit of these two, and I have a video that we can um, look at for the CPRE. In Europe and, and, and elsewhere, there's other, there are definitely other techniques. One of the most common ones is the Kelly technique, which is a radical soft tissue mobilization. We don't do that, um, as far as I know, very few places in the U.S., if any, do that, so I decided not to talk about that today. But in general, the modern stage repair of extrophy includes in the newborn time period, in that first zero to 72 hours, closing the bladder, abdominal wall, and posterior urethra to get everything inside, um, and if possible, doing a bilateral anominate and vertical iliac osteotomy. So even in the newborns, if, I, if the orthopedic surgeon feels like it's possible, doing an osteotomy to take tension off of that closure. Once that's closed, six months to one year of age, you can come back and do an epispadius repair in the boys and the girls. So the, the new newborn closure uh, and, and it closes the urethra as well. And then at four to five years, if the bladder has grown sufficiently, and the thought is that the uh, posterior urethral closure and the bladder closure will help to sort of gentle cycling of the bladder to gain bladder capacity. And if the bladder has gained enough capacity by four to five years, the child is ready to participate in a good, you know, cathing program and voiding program, then you can do a bladder neck reconstruction and often an anti-reflux procedure at the same time. On the flip side, the complete primary repair of extrophy is in the newborn time period um, or, or delayed. Uh, and again, in our hands at least, it, we do it in delayed repair. Uh, anatomical reconstruction of the bladder, um, closure, uh, immobilization of closure of the proximal um, urethra and the bladder neck, and the entire, the rest of the urethra as well. And the goal of this is to really do a gentle tapering of the bladder neck, not a formal bladder neck re reconstruction, which is like a young D's better. We have two parallel lines and you're making a long sort of fixed tube, but very gently reconstructing that. And again, I'll show you the video in a second. Um, closing the proximal urethra and the bladder neck to provide early um, uh, outlet resistance and get bl the bladder cycling. 
Now you don't, with the very gentle tapering of the bladder neck, we do not need to do a urethral reimplant. Sometimes people do, sometimes we don't. We're still studying to see um, the efficacy of it and it's, if it's worth doing at the sort of the newborn, i.e. two to three month old age. And then later on, many of these kids will be left with a hypospadias to gain as much length on the, on the corpora as possible, a hypospadias repair if needed. Often if the kids have a hypospadias, we'll actually defer the repair of that until we know exactly what their continent status is. Um, keep on mentioning osteotomy. What was the question is, do you have to do an osteotomy in all patients? As I've referred to <clears throat> already, we do try to, in the, in the newborn time period, under 72 hours, not a huge diastasis. The pubic bones should be malleable enough under anesthesia that you don't necessarily have to uh, use an osteotomy. However, most people still prefer to use an osteotomy. The benefits of it are that it limits tension on the closure. It helps as you're bringing sort of a more rounded, uh, rounded closure um, to, to drop the bladder into a more uh, dependent location and potentially improves felt pelvic floor reconstruction um, and potentially improves continence and uh, improves uh, urine prolapse rates. Um, in the osteotomy, some people will do anterior nominate or vertical. It can be done from a posterior or anterior approach. Um, there's multiple different uh, ways. We've actually tried to model and show which, which one has the sort of the best volume and, and area, and it seems like they're all fairly similar. Um, and this is just an example of the osteotomy. It's a nice, uh, this is actually an uh, older study, but it was uh, very nicely done to sort of show the different osteotomy locations and then what happens um, once you've closed a, a posterior osteotomy and how the bladder outlet closes compared to um, uh, compared to what it was anterior anominate and it sort of looks like there's a little bit less distance and an AP distance and a little flattened compared to the posterior um, and then a lateral transverse uh, osteotomy. Um, after osteotomies uh, we use fixation. External fixators um, are used in older kids. Um, we tend to not use these as much anymore, but definitely in some places it's still very common uh, with uh, Buck's traction. The kids are immobilized for four to six weeks. Again, mostly for older kids because it's hard to get the pins into the younger kids, but some younger kids will also be in external fixation. Another option is modified Bryant's traction where the, the hips are flexed at 90 degrees. Also, you're staying like that for four to six weeks in traction. And then the spica cast, um, which is a cast that is around the lower abdomen. Um, the goal is to keep the, the knees together to prevent external rotation. A um, couple different ways of, of forming these, but many times, at least we'll do, we'll form them before the surgery starts and then bivalve it so that it can be removed and put on and off so that it can. Um, if anything is, uh, needs to be examined underneath, you can go and examine underneath the, the cast and take it off. And improve mobility, the family can hold the child, parents can breastfeed, etc. And potentially the child can go home early with it. This is just an example of a bivalve cast, just holding one side up um, and one side up and, and a bar just to provide some stability to it. Um, so ultimately, let me just see, I wanted to, so I think the time, we're about at 12.30. I'm gonna pause here and just show you a, uh, a video um, instead uh, of, of going on with the talk right now. I'm gonna see if I can do this. You're gonna see me for a second. And I'm gonna share this again.
on. Sorry about this. Because I wanted, this is a video that was supposed to be presented at the AUA um, this year, and uh, we're not there. It was this past weekend. Um, um, and so I just wanted to share it uh, with you again. I'm going to sort of narrate through, um, through a lot of this uh, as we go through. Um, but this is a uh, example of some of the important things that um, in the complete refining repair of extra feet. And this is uh, from our multi-institutional blood extra consortium from Boston, uh, Wisconsin, and here at CHOP. This is just to go through some sort of the anatomy and handle tissues and opt to optimize outcomes. Um, we already sort of discussed this part. Um, here's an example of the anatomy, as we mentioned. And I don't know if you can hear uh, uh, the narration very well, but we always function on the fat as your friend principle because that helps you to clarify one of the first things you want to do as you're starting your dissection is figure out where the, the normal fascia is and where the detrusor is. And so if you can find that plane, you can not injure any detrusor as you're coming around here. By putting a finger in the bladder also, that helps you to really feel where the detrusor is and, and uh, clear off the fascia and separate the detrusor from the fascia. Um, one of the, you know, we always talk about just fine, careful tissue handling, especially even we're doing this delayed in older kids. The older kids are still two or three months old. This is another video that we tried to, um, there's a separate video in this, but we've started to use the pania stimulator to uh, demonstrate which are the intersymphyseal bands. You can see this band that got, just got separated there. That's very crucial in the, um, in the uh, dissection. I'm just going to go back just a second. Here is just when we do the urethral plate dissection. We use um, bipolar electrocautery as well as sharp dissection to really separate out the corpora from the urethral plate. And this dissection is actually harder in epispadius, which is closer to normal, easier in a bad extrophy, which is sort of already mostly separated. We peel that off, staying as close to corpora as possible in order to keep as much of a vasculature to your urethral plate to prevent stenosis later on. Um, and then you can, uh, you can approach it from um, the, the ventral side as well until you get all the way around. Um, and you can see your nice robust urethral plate here. You can pass a vessel loop or even better a Penrose so it doesn't put much tension. Here's, I was sort of describing uh, earlier on, uh, the sort of the uh, previously the bladder plate was just sort of um, sharply taken across uh, at, at, ang at angles and so that you didn't really recre recreate the bladder neck. Here we've now started to angle, uh, do a more gentle angulation of the bladder plate keeping the length at the viru uh, or the sort of the width at the viru about equal to uh, the width the rest of the urethra and then gently tapering out at the level of the bladder neck. Bladder neck to viru distance is always about one centimeter or so. Um, and then if you can just gently taper out, you, as you tubularize and close the bladder, you've had, you have a sort of a conical shape to your bladder neck with a, with a, gra a gradient of increasing diameter um, to, towards the bladder. And this, um, we believe, is showing some uh, chance of improved continence over time. 
Here you can see how we measure out. Here's the vera montanum, the bladder neck, and this whole section will end up being excised. Here you can see a demonstration of the sphincter muscle um, at, at the level of the viru and at the bladder neck. And this is really lends uh, uh, the idea that there is a continent zone in bladder extrophy. And by closing this um, in an anatomic fashion, you take advantage of that. Here's tubularizing the urethral plate. And we, take, we try to do mostly subcutaneous uh, stitches here. <coughs> Excuse me, one of the most important parts of the CPRE is assessing lance perfusion when you're closing the uh, osteotomies. And when you close the osteotomies is when exactly when you can have glands injury. Um, glands injury is devastating. It's one of the major reasons why many people don't do this repair. Um, because as you close the, the pelvis, uh, if there's any element of increased pressure and and uh, some thought is that it's from compartment syndrome, some thought it's compressing the actual vessels. You can uh, lose half or all of the, of the penis, which is uh, unacceptable, of course. And so we, we cut the glands and watch preferred bleeding as we're closing the pubic symphysis. If it stops bleeding, you have to open that stitch and close it a little less so that you uh, keep perfusion to the glands. And this is a picture of a completed um, CPRE. Um, this is early results from our, our, our MyPEC experience with um, no bladder dehiscences um, in 44 consecutive boys. Um, there, was, uh, there were some complications of some skin breakdown and urethrocutaneous fistula. Only 23 boys, we're still looking at our data from here, but only 23 boys are three years out. And we do have some uh, uh, with, with good dry intervals, about nine, I'd say have good dry intervals eight are still growing and I'm hoping with time that we'll get there. Um, and this is just voiding um, about four months after CPRE. And I'm just gonna stop right here um, and come back to the PowerPoint and continue here. Before I go on, are there any questions at all? I'm just looking at the, um, the Q&A and the chat. Okay. Um, ultimately, through all of that, I just wanted to show you that uh, little video. It gives a lot better description than uh, just me talking about it. Um, the best technique is ultimately the one that works. Um, the goal is if you can have a successful bladder closure, you can start gaining adequate uh, capacity sooner, uh, increased bladder capacity and, and um, rate of, uh, and there is an increased bladder capacity and rate of growth in successful primary closures. So getting that first stage, uh, the first closure right is, is the most important. Uh, has been shown that if the initial closure fails and the bladder opens again, only about 60% of the of redos will get capacity to undergo bladder neck reconstruction in a modern stage repair setting. Um, So uh, we sort of already went over the monitor stage repair, just the different closures, um, coming back at six to 12 months of age, coming back with a bladder neck at around five to seven. Uh, many of them will require, uh, or some of them will require bladder neck reconstruction. The, the main thing to remember about the monitor stage, it's a series of planned surgeries. You know that you're gonna go from one step to the next and the, all of them will require more formal bladder neck reconstru uh, reconstruction. 
Um, and I'll, uh, just to address one of the questions, um, I'll get into some of the results as far as CIC and voiding. Uh, in the CPRE, um, you do the conclusure of the bladder combined with uh, epispadius repair in the newborn, again, newborn time period, newborn, early infancy. Um, many of them are made hypospadiac, so that's another surgery that would have to come back. Many do require bladder neck reconstruction later, uh, later in life, and I say in others' hands because we haven't routinely done that here, um, but many people will go back uh, and, um, and do a bladder neck reconstruction. The main risk of it is this major glands and corporal complication, and that can't be taken lightly. And, you know, we even always are saying if that happens, then you, you can't do a CPRE. But with all the precautions that we take, with making sure to check the perfusion of the glands, making sure to, if, if the perfusion stops, and you can tell very quickly if the glands goes white or isn't bleeding anymore, once you open the pelvis, it, it starts to bleed again. So we'll, we'll gain, we will sacrifice a little gap in the pubic diastasis uh, for uh, perfusion of the glands. Post op, this is just still on the drapes, as you can see, neoembolicus after uh, CPRA, neoembolicus here, super pubic tube, super pubic tube, two ureteral catheters, um, hypospadiac urethra, um, and uh, a, st a splint in the in the urethra but he has a pretty uh, good corporal length at first, and this is about a year out, or a little less. Um, as far as complications go, um, early complications, as I've mentioned, uh, I can stress over and over and over again, I'm always a broken record on certain things. Penile and glandular injury um, uh, is huge. Bladder dehiscence, if you have a failed bladder closure, um, uh, with a bladder dehiscence, that definitely decreases your overall success rate. Urethrocutaneous fistula, depending on where they are, they're easier to fix versus if they're very proximal, you end up almost doing a repeat repair. Bladder outlet obstruction is another one that you have to be very wary of for. I think it's, it's more common in girls than boys. Um, sometimes it can be managed with CIC, and in some ways you say, all right, you have to be on CIC, but if the bladder looks good and you're dry, we'll take that. Otherwise, you can have even complete urethral obliteration and, and uh, need much more extensive repair. Um, and UTI and pyelonephritis is very common. We talked about the reflux. Most of these kids will have reflux. And um, the question is doing a reimplant at the time of repair and maybe over treating some kids versus doing it later on when the bladder is bigger and you get a better tunnel and potentially a better reimplant. Late uh, uh, complications chronic UTIs, pyelonephritis, epididymitis, and boys, renal insufficiency. That's the one thing, again, that it's our job to prevent because kids are not born with uh, abnormal blood, uh, kidneys for the most part. Um, and so we have to do everything we can to prevent this chronic pyelo um, uh, increase, of, you know, emptying pressure, um, bladder, bladder outlet obstruction. Pelvic organ prolapse can happen. Uh, um, in girls as they get older, um, as the uterus develops, um, and especially after, after pregnancy. And then malignancy is also another late complication that's rare, but if it does happen, it's most often an adenocarcinoma. So when you talk about outcomes and, uh, of, of extropy, it's really, it's really challenging because there's a huge range of how they're reported, and only recently are we getting more reports of very specific details because as I mentioned earlier, dryness versus continence, two very different things, same result, than not needing a, a diaper or a pad, but by different means. The other thing is 
by how many surgeries to get to that um, to that level, and that matters when you're counseling your patients. Um, and general principle that we discussed just now is a successful initial bladder closure is a very important factor. Um, and the outcomes will de depend on what was done. So one of the of a very uh, really good uh, very recent report of outcomes from the modern stage repair had 432 um, uh, 432 primary uh, MSREs. Of these. 37% ultimately had a, a bladder neck reconstruction because the other ones maybe didn't achieve the uh, criteria to have a bladder neck reconstruction. Of those, 64% are dry by cathing or by, uh, or by voiding. So it's not 100%, but 64%, which is a really good number. 18% of the ones who had a, a bladder neck reconstruction also had an augment or APV, and 61% are dry. 40% had a bladder neck closure. Um, just close the bladder outlet, catheterizable channel, and they do great. They're 93% dry. But ultimately, from all of these, of that 37% that had a bladder neck reconstruction, 23% of total are able to void per urethra after the bladder, ne uh, bladder neck uh, reconstruction um, and have uh, some, some incontinence. So that's around 20, 23%. So that, uh, to answer the uh, the question after closing the bladder do most patients require CIC? For this one, I would say the mo most do, but there is a subset that doesn't. Um, another report for uh, uh, over just over 10 years ago of CPRE at a single center had 32 patients, 23 of them were male. After 20, uh, only 21 were able to be evaluated just because they were old enough. Um, 20 were voiding, only one on CIC, so very different ratio. Um, if you look at those six, um, basically 10, um, or even 14, had pretty good dry intervals of, of two to th over three hours. Because um, a lot of kids, they're small, if they avoid every two hours, um, that would be reasonable, especially if you're th considering an extra free bladder that's naturally smaller uh, at first and will grow over time. Seven of them still had a very uh, minimal dry intervals. So ultimately, um, after CPRE only, with no bladder neck reconstruction, 19% had dry intervals of greater than three hours. But um, those numbers are a little higher if you add in the ones who had a sort of middle range continence. And then after CPRE and bladder neck reconstruction, um, four of them had bladder neck reconstruction. Uh, one was dry for over three hours and three were dry for two to three hours. In a um, similar uh, time period, another 39, uh, uh, 39 kids were evaluated, but really 23 because they were um, old enough. 74% were dry within for two hours with volitional voiding. Um, five of them had CPRE alone with no bladder neck, so that's 22%. You're sort of getting a sort of that same 20, 22, 23% range of dry with voiding is about the same, although here more of them were volitionally voiding, um, but had other procedures. So it wasn't just one surgery, that was the 22% with just one surgery alone. Three more were continent after having a bladder neck in, in injection, like a deflux. Four had bladder neck reconstruction uh, and were able to void. And then five had a bladder neck reconstruction and an additional bladder neck injection. One of them did have to have to go on to an augment and six had metrophilin and catheterized. Um, 
So I showed you the video from our MIVEC, which is our multi-institutional consortium. Um, it's been, we've been uh, doing this collaboration since February of 2013, so just over seven years. It's three centers and one coach, Dr. Mike Mitchell, um, and he's always present, uh, either traveling uh, or on a lot of video conferences now. All our, our surgeries are videotaped. We have pre and post game um, observations, but also films, so we can watch pre game films, you know, sort of game films to warm up on the, on the challenging parts of each case. Ongoing discussion during closure, um, we're, we're studying our outcomes. And one of the, the valuable things is that no matter how many times you've done this, you always can learn more and see more, and people around you can help to, to watch and, and look at more. Um, Early results from MIBEC, we found that you know delayed closure had maybe fewer early complications than um, than early CPRE. Um, it was at least equivalent to um, early closure in, in terms of continence, and allows, as I mentioned earlier, for an organized approach with a consistent team. Um, just before I get to the summary slides, so in CPRE, do you consider the bladder volume when it comes to timing of the repair? We really don't. Um, you know. We haven't found a bladder that was so small that we couldn't close, and some bladders will be just the size of one malachite, you know, of 10 French malachite is our super pubic tube with two times cut off. And if we can close it around by taking off some polyps, we'll close. And many of these bladders will grow. And in many ways, the smaller bladders, if they, we sort of believe that they might be on the better end of the, the wide spectrum that I was talking about. And if it's a more normal sort of bladder neck tissue, view tissue, they might grow even better and ultimately do better. So we haven't ever not closed someone due to the bladder size, and we just measured um, at the time of. Um, and then how is fertility ejaculation affected in boys? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so females can have pretty normal reproductive health, um, they can get pregnant, they can deliver. Many times we'll have a C-section, but uh, uh, can deliver and their their fertility is okay. In boys, you know, it's not quite clear to me whether um, they can ejaculate, but whether the ejectory ducts are uh, abnormal or if they uh, anything's been injured during the time of the initial repair or if there's retrograde ejaculation. But uh, I would say natural fertility is is rare to you know, maybe case reportable case reports on fertility in, in, in males. Now they have normal testes, and so with assisted reproductive techniques, um, they do fine because their testes are, are normal and their, their somatic function should be normal. Um, of course, the boys that are old enough to have had kids at this point or tried to have kids um, were repaired 20 to 30 years ago. So I don't know if we know going forward how, how they'll do. Um, but up until now, it's something that usually say you can have your own kids, but will probably need um, assisted techniques. Um, so uh, just a couple minutes left, sort of a summary. I always just like to joke, you know, it's, it's easy to manage, um, maybe just in, 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 in distinction with cloaca lecture, because that's a whole other issue. Um, it's, it's not, it's a lifetime of, of care. And I always tell families as I see them, prenatally or when I meet them in the NICU, that we're gonna to get to know each other very, very well. Um, we are finding that delayed closure is, to be, is as good, 
we may be fine that it's better, but we haven't been able to compare that yet with an early closure. Um, and that uh, post-op care of bladder atrophy is a multidisciplinary approach. I and mean, one urologist alone isn't doing everything. Again, especially in cholecholectrophy, but even in bladder atrophy. I was just trying to, you know, just off the top of my mind, think of all the people who are involved. NICU, you know, from when they're born, all the nursing care that they're getting, you know, after surgery, the pain team, the orthopedic surgeons, of course, the urologists, radiology with all the imaging and VCGs and, you know, uh, stentograms and cystograms, clinical psychology as they get older. There's so many people that will, uh, these kids are, are touched by so many people in the hospital and the hospital setting. Um, but um, that said, they can, they're, they can lead very productive lives. They can lead great lives. Um, continence can come for some. We know that and we've seen it. It does take time and patience. Um, and some kids will need multiple surgeries, but there are some kids will need just one. Um, and having it shown that some kids will need just one sort of gives, uh, gives us hope that maybe more can, you know, we'll just need just one surgery. Um, and really we'll keep on working uh, to develop the best method of repair. Um, and never sort of settling at, oh yeah, we've done this 50 times, we've done this 100 times, we know how to do it. No, we're constantly striving to, to make it better because until 100% of the kids are continent, we, we still have room to improve. So please, um, thank you for your attention. Please uh, send me any questions that you might have. Um, and uh, my email address is up here and uh, always happy to respond to anything or chat with anyone. Thanks. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.